Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who has been in the business of representing professional athletes for over 30 years. He successfully completed contracts for over 100 NBA players and an additional 120 players throughout Europe and Asia. In 1979, Hall of Famer Larry Brown at UCLA hired him as an assistant coach. His first year at UCLA, the Bruins went on to the Final Four, lost in the National Championship game. He was subsequently hired as head coach at three different high schools and compiled a record of 268 wins and 93 losses. He has been named Coach of the Year seven times and in two different states. In 2006, his book, Taking Shots, even though primarily a sports book, was nominated for the James Thurber Award for American Humor in 2007. He's here tonight to discuss his latest book, Seven Foot Man Eating Chicken. It is a pleasure to welcome Keith Glass to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Keith. Hey, thanks very much for having me. It made me feel very, uh, I was actually impressed with myself there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I want to start with the title of your book, Seven Foot Man-Eating Chicken. It's a take on an old P.T. Barnum story. Can you share that story and why you chose to use that and update it a little bit for the use as the title of your book? Yeah, I plainly stole it from P.T. Barnum, who's one of my my idols, What what he had done in... Back in the 1850s, he owned the American Museum in Manhattan, and he advertised a six-foot version of a man-eating chicken, advertised for four months, 25 cents to get in. They were wrapped around the block. I mean, nobody could believe this. First of all, that there was a six-foot chicken in the first place and that he was a man-eater. It was just unbelievable. You had to go in. And uh, when you finally made it through the line, there was a six-foot-tall man sitting in a chair eating chicken. And he had snookered everybody, and they laughed. And the reason that uh, I parlayed it, I added a foot for the NBA uh, average height. Um, And sometimes things are not given to you as they are advertised. Sometimes people are not what they seem. Um, So what you see is, or what you hear is not always what you get. So that's where that, that basically came from. So the interesting thing for me about this book is, in some ways, it's a sequel to Taking Shots, Tall Tales, Bizarre Battles, and Incredible Truths About the NBA, which back then raised a lot of ethical questions and asked the reader to take a hard look at things that were going on in the basketball world. But what's shocking is that in the 10 years, really nothing has changed in the way things are run. In fact, you point that out in your introduction to The Seven Man Eating Chicken. You write, my warnings about corruption in the Asian community have not only been ignored, but have also been basically dismissed as some kind of raving. So why do you think, despite investigation upon investigation, program violations after program violations, story after story, that 10 years down the road, nothing has changed? Well, I think uh, corruption is in. Okay, it's like... It's not just in the NBA. It's not just, uh, and I'm not even saying the NBA is corrupt. It's, it's more college, and it, now it's filtered down to the high school. But look around, you know, the country. Look, look at society. You know, we're in a very corrupt society. There's, there's no getting around it. I'm not trying to moralize it. Um, you know, you either accept it or you fight back against it. Uh, and the people that are fighting against corruption 
uh, in many different areas of, of life are losing. You know, it's just very simple. So, you know, I remember saying in, in the book, you know, I was treated like, you know, Keith, you're, very, you're a very humorous guy. Now go away. We're making a lot of money. Um, that's, that's the attitude. And until the money is not being made in a, in a particular way, it, it's just going to keep going. I mean, you know, I, I wrote that, like you said, 10 years ago. Uh, I wasn't wrong, but, boy, exponentially, the, the, everything has just gone uh, well north of where it was when I wrote that. You know, you touched on something about corruption everywhere. And, and you know, that kind of raised a question. As soon as you said that, how do we break down the percentages of who's to blame and what goes on with agents, coaches, and parents, kids, society? Because you, you mentioned it's not only basketball, because you take a look at the, the college entrance scandal that just went along with yeah. Felicity Huffman and, and Lori Loughlin. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it permeates every part of society. Where, where does that blame lie, and, and when do you think it started? Well, I, you know, I can't, I'm not smart enough, guys, to, to explain all of it, but I can say this, that to take the short view that it's just coaches' faults or just agents' faults or just parents' faults or just players' faults or AAU coaches' faults, or AAU programs, or whatever, it, it, it's everybody. Um, a lot of people have their hand out, and those people have not been punished in any way or been held to account. I, I look at it um, in terms of when it started, trying to get to, to that question. I think when the game in the NBA was given totally to the players, not, not just the money or the power uh, contractually, but... You know, there are isolated pockets where you can see that a one player is running a team, you know, basically. And once that happens, you're compromised. As a, as a GM, as a coach, you're compromised. We have a lot of compromised players, not so much in the NFL, because it's run in a, in a different way, but it's, it's permeating there as well. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint, but... You know, just the number of shots that a particular player is allowed to take, uh, allowed to be selfish, and there's no ramifications. And that starts, you know, way back. That starts, look, look, look at high school basketball. You know, fans are to blame for all of this, too. They got a hand in this. They're going to high school gyms, screaming and yelling, and really thinking that teams are successful who've recruited their players. These aren't guys that grew up, you know, in the neighborhood and played together their whole lives. That's what this used to be about. That's not, that, that's not how it is anymore. You know, at, at the end, this is A.J. Carter, Keith. At the end of the, the game, you take a look there, the players who make it and make a lot of money and the people for whom is broken promises, that they, they're kids who think they're going to make it dreams at very stages of the game, whether they don't make it to college, they make it to college, they get convinced into turning pro early, they don't make it in the draft. Who do you say are the real victims there, and what do you do, what can be done to change this? Because really, for every, you know, winner there is who makes, you know, multi $100 million, $200 million as an NBA player, there are people who make it and don't make it and have to go on and haven't gone through, you know, career paths that prepare them any, any sort of a career. Yeah, well, AJ, I'll tell you this. I, uh, that's one of the most singular disgraceful things about all of this. Uh, you probably had 50 kids, maybe 70, 
who were promised God knows what um, on Thursday night. Yeah. Uh, those those dreams were, were dashed. Now, is that just the agent's fault for lying to them? Uh, you could say that, but it's also the player's fault for believing it and not listening to people who are trying to tell them, look, I'll tell you as quick as I can. I've had a family, a, a father, whose son has been corrupted, okay? Uh, actually, it's a, it's a New York family. I, I can't go any further than that. Just leave it at that. I do not represent the kid. They've been calling me for four months for advice. My advice was go back to school. You're not going to be drafted. You need to be in school. You have no leverage. You need options. An agent basically either bought him off or, you know, had him leave school. And Thursday came and went, and the kid didn't get drafted. Now they're calling me. You know, I don't know what to tell them now. You know, this went on. It goes on every year. Um, There are no ramifications for it. But that's just one piece of this corruption uh, that, that is allowed to, to go on. Look, I had, a, I had an arbitration against another agent. Uh, it's in the book. The, the arbitration book, yeah. agreement is in the book. I won. I did what they asked me to do. The guy, was, the guy thrived for the next eight years until the, until the FBI raided his office. You know, it's interesting. So what, what, what do you want me to tell you? It's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, when I was reading that, I was like, first of all, it was unbelievable. It, it actually read almost as you, you could see it play out. But, you know, there's so many kids that take sports management a, as a major in college. While I was reading that, the arbitration and, and everything that went into it, it dawned on me that that would be the perfect college course for someone that was taking sports management. So I was wondering if you have ever been approached to teach a class like that, because it was like, you know, you go on the, the Internet now and they have master classes in writing and, and playing, right. you know, guitar with all these different people. I thought this was a brilliant master class in what an agent actually does and what can well, go wrong. you know, I, I, I don't know if you have any interest in being my agent, but uh, <laughs> you, sound that, you, sound, you sound pretty good. I would teach a class in five minutes. Um, and, in fact, I'm, I'm discussing it with somebody now. Hopefully it's not, not very far along. But uh, I couldn't do an Internet class. I'm, I'm so attractive. I want the kids <laughs> to be able to see me. Don't you think? Well, they do have a thing called, you know, with a camera. We could do that. We could set it no, up. No, I, I'm much better in person. In person. Trust me. So. so you mentioned something interesting about the AAU and the fact that now we have people in high school gyms. And that, I think... If we take a look at it at a, a you know a wider view, stems from the one and done rule and the fact that it's so much quicker that these kids are turning from 17-year-old high school kids to 19-year-old pros with only the one year in between, and how that that attention really is drawing in, I believe more of maybe this corruption to the AAU and it's in something that is private and is is maybe deep, less regulated than something like the NCAA that's been institutionalized for so long. What do, you, what do you think? Yeah. I'd, well, look, I was a high school coach for 16 years while I was doing, uh, you know, the, the, this current job. I, I love coaching. Um, and I could see, you know, one of you had asked me before about when did this start. Once the high school coach was kind of moved to the side a little bit uh, and AAU coaches took over, and uh, that's a problem. That, that's one of the points. Don't get me wrong. 
there are some really good AAU programs. There really are. But there are some really bad ones. Uh, and the bad ones naturally get all the ink. You know, that's just, just the way it works. But if you think about it, you know, I coached in, in California and in New Jersey. In New Jersey, I'm allowed to be in the gym with my kids for three months. The AAU coaches and programs had no restrictions. So they had them the other nine at least. And, you know, you do the math, and so the influence of a guy who is under state regulations and, you know, is regulated by a commission, he's following the rules. Those other guys have no rules to follow. You know, and so, I mean, it doesn't really doesn't take a genius to see this stuff and figure it out. But here's my point. As long as people are making this kind of money, I don't think it changes. We're speaking with Keith Glass. God, I Glass. hate to be such a downer, but it's a, no. Can I follow up? But you know, just so uh, <laughs> someone that just tuned in, we're speaking to Keith Glass, the author of a great new book, Seven Foot Man Eating Chicken. You know, one of the the chapters, I, I you know, again, you know, each time I was reading it, I, I'm I'm thinking documentaries, and maybe I should be your agent. One of the chapters <laughs> I found fascinating, and, and there you go. like I said, really to me could probably warrant a full book. I'm 59, so I wasn't even aware of this, and I'm not sure if you were either, AJ, and you're, yeah. you're a bigger basketball guy yeah. than I am. I am so 10 years old. There was a 22-minute strike in 1964 where 20 NBA All-Stars, 12 of them future Hall of Famers, sat in a locker room prior to a nationally televised All-Star game and refused to play. Can you tell our audience about that? Because that, to me, is definitely an ESPN 30 for 30. Well, I think they actually either did one or that there have been books. Um, I don't know if they've gone into the detail, but I think they have. I mean, it's just an extraordinary um, story in that these guys, you know, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Will, Bill Russell, Wayne Embry, all of those guys were at the All-Star game. And Tommy Heinsohn, who we know now as a homer for the Boston Celtics on TV, you know, the Celtics never – commit a foul and are always fouled. Um, but he was the president of uh, he was actually an insurance salesman in the off season uh, and was a very good player for the Celtics. And he was, I guess, the leader of their uh, fledgling union, but they had no rights. They had no health care. They had no pension. They, had no, they were playing back-to-backs, you know, day games after night games. And the NBA was, you know, stonewalling them. Uh, and they said, look, uh, before the All-Star game, which was live on ABC at the time, and at the time that was a big deal to be live. They didn't have many live games. Uh, they said, we're not coming out until we get a health care plan, until we're recognized as a union. We're not coming out. And, um, you know, Jack Kent Cook allegedly stormed, tried to break into the locker room and told uh, Baylor and West, if they didn't get on the floor, they were fired. Uh, they gave him a very quick response and stayed in the locker room. Um, and it lasted 22 minutes until uh, they voted, uh, and I think it was 18 to 2. Two guys still didn't want to play, and they went out and played the All-Star game, and they were recognized. So that really, to me, was the start of uh, collective bargaining between the players and, and all the sports leagues. Uh, but those guys were some incredible guys. I w- I'm so lucky in that I got to uh, interact with those guys were my heroes. I was, I was a kid when that happened. And, 
you know, I ended up negotiating against, you know, not against, but with Wayne Embry or with Jerry West or with Elgin or whoever it was. And so I, I kind of let a dream that way. And um, it was a little intimidating, but only for like 10 minutes. It's fascinating, you know, fascinating story. Let's, let's talk about college. Is there a college program that is clean? And if so, how can you tell? Or do we assume that every college, every major college program has some extent of dirty to it? I don't think, I, I think they're all clean programs. Um, and again, you'd have to define clean, uh, but I don't think they all cheat. No, I don't. And I think there are many, many schools um, where they, they're trying to do it the right way. It's not so easy for every coach to follow every kid you know, their whole life. Um, but they have so many uh, assistants that are there and compliance people. If you want to be really clean, you can do it. Um, and I clearly think that even as, as widespread as we think it is, I think it's the minority um, of, of college Division One programs that are, that are doing that. But, again, where is the responsibility? Um, there are no ramifications. Uh, you look at LSU. That supposedly the coach at LSU is on tape talking about an offer, and when they uh, suspended him for the tournament, the fans turned on the athletic director. They wanted the coach back. So is that the AD's fault or is that the fans' fault? You know, there's blame to go all over the place. If you're sitting in those stands cheering for for corruption. That's that's on you, don't you think? Yeah, I would think so. And, and that's that's the interesting thing about both your books, because it raises a lot of ethical questions. But there was one other thing that I, I and I have to ask you this, because, you know, you did the first book, and it was successful, and you, you kind of, in the introduction, go through some of the reasons why you, you did the second one. Um, your dad, Joe Glass, was Larry Brown's agent. Larry Brown was like a brother to you. You work with him at US, uh, UCLA, as we mentioned, in the open. But over the years, things changed drastically between Larry and your family. Can you tell us a little bit more about that dynamic and how much, was, um, how much motivation was it to write this book in order to get your family's side of the story out there so people would know? Well, first of all, without contradicting you in any way, it's not my family's version. Um, I just wanted facts out. You know, we're living in a time of supposedly uh, alternative facts. There are none. There's no alternative facts. There's facts and there's lies. And, yes, Larry was a huge part of my family. He's basically my brother. Um, I, 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 I owe a lot of debt to Larry, to be honest with you. He uh, took me to UCLA and whatever. But things happened at the end of my dad's life that I was not very fond of. Um, and, and I don't know if that was the impetus for the whole book, but clearly I wrote those sections for me. Um, and it was therapeutic. I remember going uh, on one of my verandas here and told my wife, you know what, I'll be back. I got to write. I took my laptop. I got 15 minutes. I'll be right back. At two hours and 45 minutes, I came back in. And that was that section where I was just kind of venting uh, about how I saw what went down. But, um, you know, Larry's not the devil. Uh, Larry did some things that I will never 
get over. Um, he's done a, a lot of things the other way for me and, and for my family, too. But uh, I, I didn't think that my dad deserved um, what he got at the end. And let, let's just leave it at that. And then if somebody wants to read it, you know, that, that's fine. It, to be honest with you guys, may even come across in my voice. It's hard for me to talk about it. Yeah, it, no, it, and I, I definitely, it's another, there's just so, so many great parts of this book. Let's talk well, about thanks. your relationship with Lloyd Daniels. For those in our audience who <laughs> may be too young to know who he is, go back, listen to our podcast of John Valenti, yeah. or pick up his great uh, book, Sweet Pea. But he was one of the most sought-after recruits in the nation during the 86-87 recruiting cycle. At that time, he was considered the most talented player from New York City since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and was reputed to combine the passing ability of Magic Johnson with the shooting ability of Larry Bird. Tell us about your relationship with him and the many stops along the NBA comeback trail and how a young player named Tracy McGrady ended up ended his NBA comeback. Yeah, you read the book. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, L- Lloyd is a uh, one of a kind, and um, you know he he just is a, a, a very very difficult to describe. But the, the McGrady thing was this: I got Lloyd, uh, you know, after most of his problems. Uh, although we all have problems, you know, all the way through. But one of our stops, I got him a ten day contract with Toronto with the Raptors the new champions. And uh, Isaiah Thomas and I did the deal. Isaiah, you know, was the first president of that club. And um, Lloyd, a 10-day, you know, is a very, very tenuous thing. You, you're basically signing for 10 days total. And if they like you, they'll, they'll do another 10-day. So there's a lot of pressure, and most players don't perform that well. Lloyd had played on Tuesday night, and... Um, in the CBA at the time, that's the G League now. And we got the deal done. They called him up. He had 23 points, I think, uh, the next night for Toronto. And just was killing people. You know, he was, I think he was averaging 17 a game. And when it came time to re-sign, or even for the rest of the year, Isaiah said to me, Keith, we've got to let him go. And I was stunned. I said, well, you've got to be kidding. He was starting. And he said, Keith. Lloyd is really good, and our coaches love him, but we drafted an 18-year-old who's going to be great. And as long as Lloyd is here, our coaches won't play him. And that was Tracy McCrady. So because Tracy was so good, and apparently they were right, uh, they had to cut Lloyd because coaches want to win that night. They don't care about the future. And so if Lloyd was was, was available... They weren't going to play Tracy. So, you know, Tracy signs for $110 million and <laughs> Lloyd and I end up in uh, somewhere in Greece. Which is also interesting because, you know, you mentioned where these kids go yeah. that were drafted they later. And, and various me, places around the like, globe. I'm yeah. an NHL guy first, NBA guy second, but the book yeah. opened my eyes to how big basketball is in Europe just when Lloyd went there and the way yeah. they were greeted. It's interesting because the forward to your book is the first client that you ever represented, and that's former NBA star Mark Eaton. And he describes how you became his agent, and he takes us inside the room when you're negotiating his first contract for the Utah Jazz, a team that would go on to retire his number. And while Mark is laying out you know, what went on for the reader, 
you know, you would think that you were in the business for like 40 years. <laughs> so before we let you go, why do you think your negotiation, negotiating style and the way you deal one-on-one -on -one with people was so successful? And why don't you think that there aren't many agents out there that do it that way? Uh, I, th I can answer that real quick. That's my parents. Um, you know, my dad was uh, a navigator in World War II and therefore was not afraid of anything. <laughs> he was never, I never saw my father afraid in any situation. He may have been concerned, but he figured it out. And my mom, uh, I think, whispered in my ear every night, um, you know, how good I was every night and until you believe it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I credit my parents for everything. And um, when I walked into that room, it actually was by the pool with Frank, Frank Layden. Uh, you want to sit at a pool with Frank Layden, it's frightening. You know, it's not a, that's not an easy visual. Frank's like 340 pounds at that time. But, um, you know, I was confident, and, and I, you know, had thought and I had anticipated what he was going to say. And, you know, you, you stick with what, what you believe. Where can people get a hold of this great book? Uh, you know what? I think Barnes & Noble was out of it already, and um, uh, Amazon, I guess, is the best way to do it. Uh, you know, and uh, it's, look, I, I'm not hawking it. You guys are doing a great job of hawking <laughs> of selling it for me. I appreciate it very much. Uh, but I, I think it's, all I want people to do is read it. Um, it's not about, you know, the purchase price. It's about, to me, is you know, if people like it and, and they apparently do they've been you know i've been getting great responses on it that's why you write you don't write nobody writes anymore for money they write they write so people will read it you're talking to two guys that, that know exactly what you mean trust right. me right. um go out and buy our book while yeah, you're looking you, at books yeah. <laughs> so, all right what's your, give me the name uh, glove story fathers and sons See? in the american pastime <laughs> well, we need an tonight. agent wait a minute we, we need, need an agent, agent. right <laughs> And now you guys are going to get me my uh, course. I'd love, believe me, I'd love to. You know, coaching is teaching. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm experienced on that side. But I, I and I would love to do it because, um, you know, I, I think people need to know, you know, what it really is all about. Excellent. Keith, so, thanks so much for your time tonight. Again, love the book. And I'm, like I said, I'm an NHL guy first, NBA guy second. <laughs> But there were just so many fascinating stories and, and some of the names, you know, even though it's my, you know, the, my second winter sport, I knew all the names. And, and like I said, that, that all-star story just blew my mind. I, I was like so, you know, you know it's a good book that when you're reading it, when you're in a certain chapter, you go and Google more stuff. So even with, with the arbitration <laughs> case, I wanted to know more. Right. Just it, it was so good. I, I really enjoyed it. So thanks so Guys, much for your time I, I really okay. appreciate it. I really do. You guys have been really, really kind. You got it. Keith Glass, longtime agent, author of the great new book, Seven Foot Man Eating Chicken.